Good morning, church. Hope you're all doing well today. My name is Ben Bantha, and um, our family is involved in a life group here. Um, and I've been asked to do the reading, so today we're going to be reading from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So if you all could turn with me in your Bibles. Um, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, the, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Pastor Zach and I are switching places today. He is teaching at the Boulder campus this morning, and I'm always excited to be in Thornton. I was telling people earlier, I love seeing old friends that I've known for a long time, and I love seeing the new faces of folks who are a part of Calvary Bible Church in Thornton. And if we have not yet had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service today. This is our fourth week in a summer series that we've called This We Believe. And together we're exploring some of the foundational beliefs of Christians. So if you've been around church for a long time, or maybe even if today is your first time, our hope is that this series will help all of us understand or perhaps solidify the beliefs we hold as truth. A 2022 survey that was conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research indicated that the theological convictions of professed evangelical Christians are slipping away from the historical orthodox teachings of the scripture. 38% of respondents to this survey said they were more likely to consider religious beliefs to be a matter of personal opinion rather than about objective truth, which was up 15% in 2020, only two years. According to the researchers, this view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that's out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural values. It matters what we believe. And we believe there are things in our world that are actually objectively true, despite what our culture says. And we believe those things that are objectively true are revealed to us in the Scripture. And that's why we started this series there, with the Bible. What the Bible is, what we believe about it, what it reveals 
to us. And then Gary led us through our beliefs about God the Father, who He is, and Thomas last week about the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to focus our time and attention about what we believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's a summary about what we believe about who Jesus is from our statement of faith. It says, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Now, this statement is not from the Bible, but is a summary of sorts of what the Scripture reveals to us about Jesus. If you've been around Calvary for a while, you probably are familiar with our mission statement. We're all about building Christ-centered communities of people who are fully devoted to loving God and loving others. Sort of the key statement there is that we want to be Christ-centered. We want everything about our church to be about Jesus. So we're centered around him. We're not led by a group of elders, ultimately. Our church is not about pastors. It's not about the congregation. It's not about our personal desires. It's not about the ministry programs that we offer. But our church is ultimately about and centered around Jesus. And so it would be important for us that every person who calls Calvary Bible Church their home to be able to answer a common question clearly and accurately. And that question is this, who is Jesus? The text that was read for us earlier from Colossians is one of the best sections of verses that we have that explain the identity of Jesus, that answer that question. Who is Jesus? So if you haven't already turned there, would you open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1? Paul says in his letter to the church at Colossae that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes visible what is otherwise invisible. We learn when we study the doctrine of God that God is, does not occupy a body, but God is spirit. He is invisible. No one has ever seen God. But what Jesus does is he manifests God to us so that we can understand what God is like and see him for who he is. If you wonder what God is like, you look to Jesus, because that's his role, to be the visible representation for us of who God is, the image of the invisible God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus is also, Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. Now we see that and we might think for a moment, now what, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was at some time in history born? This isn't speaking of when he was born of a virgin. 
Is this like a sequence of events? There, there is a heresy that believes that Jesus was created. No, this is not like a sequence of events. This is not a timeline that Paul is describing, but rather this is a title, the firstborn. And when you think especially about the ancient world and all that was given to the firstborn son, it's a title that has an immense amount of privilege. An immense amount is given to the firstborn. In the ancient world, titles and power and most possessions were passed from generation to generation to the firstborn. We witnessed the coronation of King Charles of England earlier this spring. Why was Charles given the title and position and power and authority as King of England? Was it because he was the most qualified man in all of England to be the king? No. Was he voted by the people as the most popular person and therefore he should be their ruler and leader? No. The reason why Charles was crowned the King of England was for one reason, because he was the firstborn son of Elizabeth. And why was Elizabeth the Queen of England? Because she was the firstborn daughter of George. And why was George the King of England? because his brother Edward abdicated the throne to marry an American socialite, but that doesn't matter. (laughs) The point is, and the argument that Paul is making, is that Jesus is the firstborn because he is in a class all by himself. He is the one who receives the privilege and the power and the authority, the preeminent son of God. In fact, the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end, speaks about Jesus and his place of priority, his position, his preeminence. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Understanding the true identity of Jesus is what defines a Christian. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is foundational for us as his followers. And there are a lot of different ways that people answer that question. Many people would describe Jesus as a great moral teacher, but would stop there. Many, even other world religions, believe Jesus to be a gifted prophet of God, but no more. Some critics of Jesus have described the Son of God as a scoundrel. Many believe that Jesus was a leading social reformer. But I would like you to leave today with three assurances about who Jesus is. First, that Jesus is fully God. That survey that we talked about earlier, the majority of people who were surveyed actually did believe that Jesus was created. Here was the survey statement that they were asked to respond to. It said, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You can see that a majority of people strongly or somewhat agreed with that statement. Now, to be fair, that might be a little confusing as you're going through a survey, trying to get it done quickly, you see words like first and greatest, and you think, oh yeah, that's who Jesus is. He's first and he's greatest. But Jesus was not created by God. 
Jesus has always existed. He is the eternally existent Son of God. Back in our verses in Colossians, in verse 16, Paul says that all things were created through him and for him. You cannot be created and also create everything that's ever been created. That's an impossibility. And the idea that Jesus is a created being by God is one of the oldest heresies. And we would want every person at Calvary to have total confidence that Jesus is fully God. And in order to be fully God, he must be eternally existent. Now here's several verses for your reference that might be helpful for you to write down, maybe take a picture of the slide and reference them later. But all of these speak to Jesus Christ's divinity, to his unique identity as fully God. John 1.1, a famous verse that describes Jesus as God, written by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's who the Apostle John believed Jesus to be, God himself. He goes on in verse 14 to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, one of the only sins that Jesus was ever accused of when he was on the earth was that he was a blasphemer. Why? Because he regularly claimed to be equal with God. And the religious leaders of his day wouldn't have it, which you can understand. If you don't believe a person to be God and they claim to be God, it's fair to call them a blasphemer. They also didn't like that Jesus declared that he and he alone had the power and authority to forgive sin. Maybe you remember the time Jesus was in Capernaum in northern Galilee, teaching, and there was a large crowd, as often was, around him. And a group of people had a friend who was had been paralyzed for his entire life and they wanted to get him to Jesus so that he might be healed. And this crowd was so enormous that they had to sort of fight their way in. And Jesus is inside of this house and the only way they could get to him was to climb up on the top of the roof, remove part of the roof and lower the man down on his bed so that he would come to rest right in front of Jesus where he was teaching. And as the man is laid in front of Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, what are you doing here? How did you get here? What's happening? No, he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Which is an amazing thing to say. And the religious leaders of the day are around there and they're offended that Jesus would say such a thing. Who has authority on the earth to forgive sins? Only God does. Only God has the power and authority to forgive sins. And the religious leaders who witnessed that event said the same thing. Who does he think he is? That he's forgiving sins. And Jesus, reading their minds, responds to them and says to them, what do you think is easier? To forgive sins or to heal this man of his paralysis? I mean, to be fair, they're both kind of difficult. (laughs) But Jesus says, so that you might know 
that the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk, take your bed and leave. And immediately, this man who has been paralyzed for his entire life stands up, grabs his bed, walks out the door. And it says that everybody was amazed and glorifying God, and they said, we've never seen anything like this. Of course they hadn't. This is the power of God on display for them. They have witnessed Jesus demonstrating his power as God and God alone. And healing people who were plagued by disease was just one of the ways that Jesus demonstrated his divine nature for us. There were others too. He raised a few people from the dead. The widow's son, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, all of them he raised from the dead. Who has the power to raise the dead? Only God does. He stopped natural disasters while they, were while they were happening. You remember the story? The disciples and Jesus are out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. He's asleep somehow. And there's a tremendous storm that breaks out. The disciples are terrified. They don't know what to do. They panic. They wake Jesus up. And with a word, the storm stops immediately. And they say, who is this man that even the wind and the seas would obey him? He commanded demons, and they would listen to his voice. So Jesus showed his power over disease, over death, over disasters, even over demons. And who has that kind of power but God alone? And when his followers called him God, Jesus didn't stop them from doing that. You can imagine a man as devout as Jesus was. If he was not God himself, he would have rebuked his disciples for declaring him to be God. But Jesus asked a question to his disciples that I asked to you earlier. He started by saying, who do the people say that I am? And just like today, they had lots of different answers. They said, oh, some people think that you're a prophet Maybe some people think that you're Elijah reincarnated. And then he says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is also called Simon, he often answered for the whole group, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You understand what my true identity is. You know who I am, Peter, the eternally existent Son of God. One more verse for you from Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Paul says that because of all that Jesus accomplished for us when he was on the earth, the work that he did on the cross, and because of his resurrection, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed or given to Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you hear what Paul is saying there? Paul says that, that the name, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven. 
That means that in the presence of God, in heaven, Jesus Christ will be worshipped. Who is worthy of worship? Only God is. Jesus is fully God. Greg Waybright, who for many years was a pastor of a church like Calvary and then served as the president of Trinity University, has said this about Jesus. Jesus Christ has always been a controversial figure. However, unlike other figures in history, the controversy surrounding Jesus of Nazareth has not primarily focused on his teaching or even on his actions, but on how these point to his identity. His moral instruction has been widely acclaimed and his religious devotion almost universally admired. But the early Christians were not content with describing Jesus simply as a great moral teacher or even as a prophet of God. His words and actions compelled them to turn to the category of divinity in order to explain him. Nothing less would do. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is fully God. He is also fully human. Now, when we picture Jesus as high and lifted up and exalted and that at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and we hear stories about how he demonstrated his power over death and disease and demons and disaster, he can seem altogether different than us. And to be fair, he is. He is in a category all by himself. But not only would I want you to have assurance that Jesus is fully God, but I would want you to be totally confident that Jesus is a human just like you. And that he understands what it's like to suffer. He knows what it is to experience pain and sorrow, disappointment. He knows what it is to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it is to be mocked or made fun of. He knows what it's like to be human. In one of my favorite books that I've read recently about Jesus, and particularly about the humanity of Jesus, it's written by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Dane's a pastor, and he says, For all of Jesus' resplendent glory and dazzling holiness... His supreme uniqueness and otherness, he is fully God. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God, this is amazing, stepped down from heaven to earth, and as John said, became flesh and dwelt among us, born of a virgin. And because the Son of God became human, he experienced human limitations that we all experience. He was hungry. The Son of God was thirsty. He was tired from long journeys. He was able to experience temptation at the hand of Satan and triumph over it. 
And ultimately, the Son of God experienced the ultimate human limitation, death. And because Jesus is fully human, his death can cover our sin. Only a true and perfect person could effectively pay our penalty through his death. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in order for that sin to be paid for, Jesus had to die. And only a human death could cover the death of another human. And only the perfect Son of God, the spotless Lamb, could stand in our place. Peter, another one of Jesus' closest followers, said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is a euphemism for the cross. Jesus bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus experienced death in his physical body for you. And because of that, you are offered healing. You are offered salvation because Jesus died a real death. Back in Colossians, Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. There's that title again, the firstborn from the dead. Now that, of course, is describing his resurrection. But again, you think back, this is not a chronological description that Paul is using here because Jesus was not the first person to be resurrected. We talk about the few people that Jesus raised from the dead during his ministry, even in the Old Testament. Elijah was raised from the dead. But this is a title given to the Son of God that we can have confidence that we might be raised from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. He shed his blood for you. We celebrate that every month during communion. The real body of Jesus was, was killed. His blood was really shed for us. Jesus died a real death so that we might experience real life with him. Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is fully human. Now back to our statement. The final sentence said that Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, and then it says this. He was ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. I think we most often think about Jesus and the work he has done in the past. His ministry here on the earth, his teaching ministry, his healing ministry, of course, of course, the work that he did on the cross for us and his resurrection. But how often do we think about the work that Jesus is doing today? Right now, as we sit here on the earth, what is he up to? Our statement says that he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So I'd ask you this question, what kind of chair do you picture Jesus sitting in right now? Is he in an office chair, doing some light paperwork, kind of overseeing the administrative details of what's happening in heaven, maybe assigning, delegating tasks to the angels? Perhaps Jesus is sitting in a lazy boy. He's relaxing for the hard work that he did while he was here on the earth. 
Maybe you think of Jesus sitting in a chair like you are right now, kind of an auditorium chair, just simply casually observing what's happening on the earth. No. Jesus is seated today in heaven on a throne at the right hand of God because he is our king. And what do kings do? Kings reign and rule over what's happening. And this king has all authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on he- in heaven and on the earth. So Jesus has authority over all things, and he is seated at the right hand of God in a throne. For you, as your high priest and advocate. And that's what he's been doing since he returned to heaven. Caring for his people, loving them, watching over them, and serving as our high priest and advocate. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest? Well, in the Old Testament system, priests would offer the Lord a sacrifice on behalf of those people that they represented. They would head into the temple. They would first offer a sacrifice on their own behalf because these priests were imperfect humans like the rest of us. So they would have to seek forgiveness for their own personal sin, and then they would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people that they represented. And there was a routine where this would happen over and over and over again to cover over the sins of the people. But Jesus is an altogether different kind of priest because he offers himself, his own physical body. He is the spotless, perfect Lamb of God who once and for all offered his own life as a substitute for us and took our place and died the death that we deserve to live so that we might live life forever with him. And Jesus is able to offer his life because he's humbled himself, becoming a man like us in order that he would sacrifice his perfect and sinless humanity as an effective offering for our sin once and for all. The book of Hebrews has some of the most exquisite verses that describe Jesus' role as our great high priest. And in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the author of Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, or to correct the double negative of that verse, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he understands what it means to be a human, and he has experienced life just as we have. So he is sympathetic to the challenges that we face as humans. But he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is our high priest and he is also our advocate. What does an advocate do? An advocate stands between an accuser and the accused, between a judge and a defendant. An advocate appeals or argues on behalf of the accused person. And Jesus now stands eternally in our place, representing us 
before God the Father. The eternal reminder that we have been declared righteous in the eyes of God because of the work of Christ. John says in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you ever feel guilt because of the sin that you've committed, you should be reminded that Jesus is in heaven today, in that very moment, advocating for you on behalf of the Father. It's not just the sins that you committed before you became a Christian that Jesus died for. It's every single sin you will ever commit, past, present, future. And as those happen in your life, you might just picture Jesus standing in the presence of God saying, I took care of that one. That one's on me. I paid the penalty for that sin too. And so we can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace and seek forgiveness once again because Jesus has died for us and eternally represents us in heaven as our substitute. Another one of the ways that Jesus serves as our advocate and what's he, what he's doing right now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father is that he intercedes for us or he prays for us. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Jesus is praying for you. When you don't know how to pray, when you're at your wit's end, when you don't know what to do, you can have confidence that Jesus Christ is praying for you. Philip Yancey, the author, wrote a book about prayer, and in it he says this, In three years of active ministry, Jesus changed the moral landscape of the planet. For nearly 2,000 years since, he's been using another tactic, prayer. Jesus prays for you. Many commentators believe that the verses we looked at today from Colossians were part of one of the earliest Christian hymns or songs about Jesus. And Paul simply included it in his letter to them as a reminder to what they, uh, for them about what they believed about Jesus. So it was part of the worship experience of the early church to sing songs about the identity of Jesus. Within a few decades of the death of Christ, his followers, the early church, regularly and normally gave to him the title and honor of being God himself. Often when you hear people answer the question today, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, I think he was a great moral teacher or he was indeed a wonderful social reformer or he was a great prophet, but I think the church has just gotten carried away over the last 2,000 years and they've made up this idea that Jesus didn't even believe that he was God. I want you to see that's just not true at all. His earliest followers declared him to be God himself. And for 2,000 years since, his church has declared together that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully human, and today is serving his church as our high priest and advocate. Do you believe this? 
I want you to know, my friends, that if you've never considered that Jesus Christ is truly God, or if you've never seen him as, a, as the kind of person that you could relate to, or if you've just thought, that's something that happened 2,000 years ago, how could that possibly have bearing on my life today? I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he left heaven to come to earth to save you so that you might forever live with him. And his calling to you today would be to surrender your life to him. Say, Jesus, I confess my sin to you and I ask for your forgiveness. And I have total confidence that if you do that, he will welcome you in to his family. Paul says, finding salvation in Jesus is as simple as confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So if you've never made that decision, I would invite you right where you are in your seat to just talk to the Lord and tell him, Jesus, I believe you are God himself. And I believe that you can forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness and I lay myself at your feet. And I believe with all of my heart that God raised you from the dead. And if you pray that to God, you can have total confidence that you have received salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the eternally existing Son of God. And we are gathered together today in your name to worship you and to bring glory to you. And I pray for every heart in this room that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would increase our confidence in who you are. And for any heart that maybe has yet to surrender to you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior, I pray by the work of the Holy Spirit that they might be born again to new life in Christ. And God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would have courage from you to share the love of Christ with friends and family and those that we come across, that we might be able to confidently share who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he offers to every person, everywhere, the free gift of salvation. Lord Jesus, we bless you for who you are. May we grow in our love for you, and may you deepen our faith. By the work of your Spirit, we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.